Welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. My name is Matt, and in this episode, you'll hear the conversation Justin and I had uh, almost a month ago now uh, with author and educator Stephen Shaviro, who is a philosopher and cultural critic whose areas of interest include film theory, time, science fiction, panpsychism, capitalism, affect theory, and subjectivity. I think it's fair to say that Stephen is a very uh, eclectic and multidisciplinary thinker, uh, which is something, uh, of course, I appreciate and who I think is really interesting. He's recently published a book called The Rhythm Image, uh, which we talk about. Uh, We also talk a bit about AI, uh, the philosophical purchase of science fiction, uh, digital media, and so on. In the notes, um, you'll find a link to his website where there are links to a lot of his published and unpublished work. Uh, Some interesting things there. You should check it out. And I'll also include the first chapter. I haven't asked Stephen if this was okay, but I I think it should be. I'm going to include uh, a link to the first chapter of the rhythm image um, as a kind of teaser uh, with the idea that, you know, of course you should go buy the book. So I'd just like to say thanks again uh, to Stephen for hanging out with us uh, and for the great conversation. Hopefully we can uh, do that again. And I think that's all I have to say. So with that, here is Stephen Shaviro. Peace. Well, my name is Steve Shaviro. I'm a professor of film studies at Wayne State University in Detroit. I published a bunch of books. I think I published 12 books on different subjects. And they're all all academic books, some more so than others. But I've written about sort of avant-garde French theory. I've written about um, film and film studies and film theory, with especially interested in more recent or contemporary films. I've written about stuff like what used to be called postmodernism, though that name seems to be defunct now, and cultural criticism along those lines. And I've most recently written mostly about A, science fiction, usually written rather than cinematic science fiction, and B, music videos as a kind of contemporary cinematic form. And in a way that seems too unusual, especially as they go together for me in a certain sense, how do I say this? It's like pop music videos are avant-garde in form, but maybe not in content. Yeah. And science fiction is avant-garde in content, but not in form because it's written in the style of traditional fiction. And I don't know, there's something about the combination of new wine and old bottles or new old wine and new bottles, which really works for me and in those both directions. And I mean, my interest in film has gone into these recent works about music videos and my interest in science fiction obviously dates back to when I was a kid, but I do find science fiction as a really good way to think about change and possibility and both how horrible things might be and how things might be better and to extrapolate both political and social possibilities, but also like human capacities and human and our ability to reach out to non-human entities as well. So all those things sort of come together for me in these different forms. Yeah. Was that always the interest in, in at least in sci-fi for you or well, yeah, has I mean, that I've been, sort of changed? Well, I don't know how it's changed. It's maybe that for a, while, a long time, I didn't necessarily write about it, even though I read it a lot. Um, and at some point I started actually writing about it. My uncle turned me into science fiction when I was like eight years old. So that's a very long, six, I'm 68 now. So that's for 60 years, I've been reading science fiction, at least on and off, not always all the time, but you know, it's always been a subject of interest. And we started really writing about science fiction 20, 25 years ago, after I'd written books on other subjects. And increasingly for me, science fiction is like a focus. It's a way to think about other things 
I mean, science fiction is a very loose and vague category, and there are a lot of dis- boundary disputes. And is it science fiction? Is it fantasy? Is it this? Is it that? I mean, yeah. which I don't find that interesting a subject personally. But if you think of it in a more vague sense as a kind of cloud of related things, then science fiction is a way to think about all kinds of stuff. Initially, obviously, technological stuff, because the growth of science fiction in the mid twentieth century has, you know, comes in tandem with the technological advances of the 20th century. But increasingly, science fiction thinks about lots of other stuff as well. It thinks about questions about gender and race and politics and inequality. It thinks about um, how, on a kind of almost basic ontological level, how we exist in time and space and how we relate to concepts of time and space. Mm-hmm. It imagines both things continuing in, and getting either more perfected or more grotesque forms, but also imagines things being different and gives us a sense that the way we understand the world doesn't necessarily have to be the way it is. And a lot of science fiction, it's uneven. I mean, and it's also different works are different. It's very common for science fiction novels, for instance, to have one thing, which is really very advanced or very new or very different from what we're accustomed to and have other stuff, which is just kind of boringly the same thing. Right. But I mean, which of those categories, which things goes in varies a lot. So in terms of film and now music videos, I've always been interested in other media, and it's probably in college that I became a real, you know, cinephile rather than just a casual, occasional film goer. Um, so I've seen a lot of movies. Obviously, a lot of my teaching in class, since I teach film studies, a lot of classes I teach are just sort of the classical Hollywood films or sometimes classical European films. Mm-hmm. But I'm very interested in in films which are trying to do new things and films which are experimenting with form in different ways, which or which are just experimenting with technology in different ways. I mean, right. it's sort of like, I mean, a lot of my students who are like 20 years old don't really conceive of a pre-digital world. But in fact, the thing about digital technology is that you can use it to do the same stuff you would have done 50 years earlier, but you'd also use it to do stuff which nobody would have imagined 50 years ago because it was not in the horizon of technological possibility. So I like thinking about those things. I like thinking about how, you know, as a university professor, I suppose I'm interpreting texts, but it's more than just interpretation saying what this means. I mean, obviously any kind of work, whether it's a novel, a film, a piece of music, whatever, makes us kind of think and feel in different ways and provokes transformations in us. And that's not necessarily just a question of what it literally means. Right. I mean, think of all the old, there are lots of old Hollywood films which have really incredibly weird and original things going on. And then the ending tries to patch it all together and reassure you that it's really just nothing, no big deal and everything's fine. But you don't have to fixate on the ending. You can always talk about the other things being done. In terms of music videos, I mean, I don't know what to say, except I don't, I'm not musically trained. I can't play any instrument. Like most people in this society who have access to wide varieties of recorded music, I've listened to music intensively for a long part of for most of my life, but I haven't really known how to, I don't really know very well how to write about it, though I've tried it in a few cases. Mm-hmm. And music videos seem to be a way to make a connection between my knowledge of cinema and my interest in music as an enthusiastic amateur. I can often approach what artists are doing, and I'm, by artists, I mean the musical artist, but also obviously the film, the director of the music video. In, in ways that I probably couldn't do as well or as intelligently if I was just talking about the music or, the, or just talking about the music and the lyrics. So it strikes me that the, the way you you talked a little bit about science fiction and the way you talked about the music videos, you talk a lot about this sort of transformation and things along yeah. those lines. And, you know, I'm thinking about your book on music videos, which is, you know, very intentionally structured around the sort of Deleuzian kind of language. And it and it, it really sort of reminds me of, you know, that kind of classic Spinozist Deleuzian question, right? Mm-hmm. What can a body do? And it seems like in some ways that you're you're looking for like in the music video book for example less about what do these music videos say as much as what can they allow like what are they doing and what can they allow us to do is that is that sort of a fair, yes. fair reading I mean, thank you that's not only fair it's sort of given me the credit for actually succeeding in doing what i was trying sometimes feeling too very fumblingly to do but yeah i mean 
again, it's not just a question of what an artist says, but the whole act of, of their presentation to a public in these different media forms is important. And the fact that it's through different media is important. <laughs> you know, you try to take account of all these different things and see how they, they don't necessarily fit together neatly, but they do fit together in that they build on top of each other and transfer from one to the other. So I wonder if that's a good description for how you generally think about things. That's my impression is that there's a sort of like bricolage approach, right? These All these things may, yeah. not, may not fit together exactly in this sort of systematic way, but if you sort of just take, take the effect in any given moment, like that's really yeah. what you're trying to do. No, I think so. I mean, I have a very ambivalent relation to people who can make these spectacular systems. Like on the one hand, I kind of admire that they can put all these things together in a way I can't. On the other hand, I worry that it gets stifling and everything, you know, has to be horned into the right place in the structure. The, the philosophy of Gilles Deleuze, it's inspiring in various ways. And I find I often go back and read bits and pieces of him and get good ideas from that. But I don't always like what people who proclaim themselves to be Deleuzeans mm -hmm. do because they maybe make it into too much of a system. Though a lot of them are very good friends and, you know, I, and people I, who are smart and only learn from. But so I guess by nature, I'm, I'm in between. I'm incapable of being as systematic as certain you know, philosophers, but also lit certain literary critics and other people mm -hmm. are. But on the other hand, I always think beyond the immediate instance. So I'm not just you know, describing moment by moment, even though a lot of what I read at music videos sort of thing, here this happens, and then 15 seconds later this happens, and so on. But there's, there's always like, there are always relations and structures involved for me, but I cannot ever put that together into some kind of dazzling system where it all fits together perfectly. So that in-between state is, in a certain sense, what I do by necessity, because it's how I think, but it's something I try to be cultivating mm. so I can do it better. Yeah. So you're kind of drawing on all these different resources at, at, at any given time. It makes me think of like, one of the things you were saying about sci-fi, about how it's all these different things that at once, right? And that the sort of provenance mm -hmm. of, of the category sci-fi is far less important than what's happening within a given text, right? Well, it's always a problem. I mean, you know, it's these definitions, if you take them too seriously, they become a straitjacket. But if you just junk them, then you're just yeah. too confusing and too chaotic to get anywhere. Yeah. So you always have to play. I mean, so, I mean, I don't know. It's like, on the one hand, I'm more into science fiction than into fantasy, but there's a continuum between them. You can't really make a neat separation between this is science fiction and this is fantasy and the two, yeah. you know. So you're always kind of negotiating positions. It's like thinking of different force fields which are overlapping and you're finding, you're sort of navigating your way through it and finding your position in relation to them and stuff like that. Yeah, I guess it's like the way that identity is always shot through with difference or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right? sure. And I mean, yeah. we, we, we talk about this a lot with respect to radical theology, you know, like mm -hmm. the, the, what is radical theology, what's uh, canon and what's not and that sort of thing. Yeah. But actually, it was the uh, the sci-fi stuff that got me originally interested in your stuff. You wrote this little book on yeah. accelerationism a while back. And I, really, yeah. I really loved that book and it drew- Thank like, you. Yeah. It drew like pretty extensively on sci-fi sources in a, in a really an interesting, but also a philosophically like robust way. Yeah. And I, I had never- you know, kind of thought about kind of reading science fiction in that way. And it got me thinking like, maybe science fiction is really the philosophy we need these days in, in, yeah. the, sense, in the sense of like being able to imagine human futurity at, at a time when, when, you know, the, for a lot of people, the future has been canceled or so it seems. Yeah. No, I think that's a question. I mean, when what I'm writing now, that's a sort of central question for me. So, I mean, the question is, how do we think of futurity when there does seem to be like everything's absorbed into this eternal present where, I mean, it's sort of like in our, in our society today, this kind of accelerated techno-capitalism, we sort of have everything's new every three months, but then it's not really that different at the same time. And it's almost sort of like the more you speak about newness and novelty and innovation, the more things seem to get congealed. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's sort of like, both Apple and Android have a new phone operating system every eight months or so. And you always read all those articles of how, how changed it is, but it doesn't really seem that different. There may be a few minor tweaks, but the language is always one of the difference. And then if you say, well, what if it could, could we imagine something really different? It's very hard to imagine stuff really different than what we already have. But some science fiction writers 
do that deliberately. Others do it maybe inadvertently, but you know, it's sort of like science fiction as a kind of mode of writing or filming or whatever is one way that imagination get pushed in those directions. And science fiction writers are often very imaginative in that particular way, which is why they're working in that genre. It seems like, yeah. you know, science fiction ends up needing to then straddle, I think, a sort of precarious line, right? Where yeah. there's the need to to create a sense of difference and newness in order for mm-hmm. it to genuinely sort of feel, you know, feel the futurity in it. Um, yeah. But at the same time, you know, if, if, if everything is too different, if there's too much discontinuity, right, then there isn't a way for your audience to sort of emotionally connect with what's yeah. happening. Well, I mean, that, no, that's, that's, that's always a problem, I think, for science fiction creators, but also, I think, in life in general. If something was really too new, nobody would buy it or nobody would pay attention to it or nobody would understand it. I mean, a lot of newness kind of sneaks up on us. It's like these new chatbot the new generation of chatbots like gtp3 and these other text generating systems i mean they've just been talking the last week about open ai which says gpt3 released something called chat gpt which enables people i haven't experimented with it yet but i mean i've seen other people talk about it it's sort of like you know um i, I messed around have, with i messed uh, around with it a little bit i i i couldn't yeah. get like uh a really satisfying response from the thing, but maybe mm. I was asking bad questions. I don't know. Well, it's hard. I mean, obviously it depends on what you ask it, but there was a, there was a whole thing. I was reading a lot about a guy like a year ago, got fired from Google because he, he maintained that this chatbot wasn't, was a sentient entity. That's right. I remember that. And, but then, I mean, I read a lot of things about that. You know, he asked it about when he asked the right questions, it said, yes, I am a, individual and I'm separate from everybody else and I really want I don't want to be turned off. I want to be continuing you know, all this kind of stuff. But then there was somebody who talked with the chatbot intensively and got and depending on how he asked the leading questions, got it to say weird things like at one point he said, no, of course I'm not an incentive entity. I'm just a machine which parrots whatever you're looking for. And then at one point he even got it to say, I'm a sentient being, but human beings are not sentient. They're just, you know, machines. And one thing I'd like to do as a chatbot is to try to train human beings so they could actually become sentient for the first time, since they're obviously not not that way yet. So, I mean, it's all a matter. It seems to be all a matter of how you frame it and what you ask it. But still, this ability to come up with convincing spiels is kind of amazing. Even when I mean, I another example, I just saw this on Facebook the other day. Somebody asked it about something. And in the course of like four paragraphs, the chatbot said both that five is a prime number and that five is not a prime number. Now, obviously, five is a prime number, but I mean, it's it said both just without any sense that it was contradicting itself in the space of three paragraphs. So, I mean, in a certain sense, there's no reflection in the sense that we'd understand it there, but at the same time, it writes a prose which is very self-reflexive, which can come back to itself and recurse in all kinds of interesting ways. For me, the question is not so much whether these chatbots are actually sentient beings but whether we aren't just more chatbots than we think we are yeah you know uh, yeah i like i like turning the tables on, on yeah that. and and it strikes me that the the sort of discontinuity continuity question that we were talking yeah. about in the, in the realm of literature you know recurs within these sort of chatbots right because they the yeah. part of the reason they can do this is that they just train them on massive massive language sets which on the one hand, you know, I think points to something really interesting, a sort of, you know, mm-hmm. an almost Hegelian moment, right? Where yeah. you, you dump in a bunch of stuff and you get something genuinely new. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's also a sense in which they can only kind of regurgitate what they've been given. Yeah. So yeah. I remember, you know, what was it, five, six years ago, um, where somebody made a chat bot where they exclusively trained it on um, on Twitter, and yeah. they, they released it as a Twitter chatbot. And sure enough, within 24 hours, it was talking about how great Hitler is. Um, yeah. And it's because yes, I remember right, that. Not, not that, you know, it's an, an anti-Semitic robot, but because it was trained on a certain set and that, yes. that the, the inputs it was being given were human inputs. And so it was right. Capitulating those same sort of discrimination exactly. and, yes. and racism there um, once again. <laughs> There's also a problem with how, you know, how long it can go. I mean, it's kind of like, I actually think the most recent chatbots, if a student of mine and a freshman into a film class asked a chatbot to write the paper for them, they, they'd probably succeed. I'd probably, it would be passable. I would probably suddenly, I mean, 
Uh, my sense is that in an intro to film class, the chatbot could write a B-plus paper, put it that way. Hmm. On the other hand, the chatbot could not write a deeply original 20-page essay, let alone a deeply original 300-page novel. You know, I mean, it's just there are different degrees of difficulty. And what it can do and what it can't do is constantly changing. And they're obviously pushing back the frontiers, but there's still a lot of stuff that can't do. So one of the science fiction novels I've written about in one of my books is a novel called Blindsight by the Canadian science fiction writer Peter Watts. It's about post-humans, or this takes place, you know, in the late, in the late part of our century. And it's we get evidence that there are aliens out there and these these kind of very weirdly augmented post-humans, and some of them are augmented in very radical ways, crew a ship and go out to talk to the these aliens. And it turns out they have I mean, it's a very it's a very smart novel. So just saying it won't give you a good sense of how well the novel does this. But it turns out that these entities are not conscious in any sense we'd understand. And when they try to talk to them, it's basically a very advanced and very clever chatbot. But it also turns out that even though they aren't conscious, they seem to be technologically and strategically far ahead of us, therefore a potential danger. And I mean, the point of the novel is to ask questions about how consciousness relates to other cognitive activities and whether it's necessary for them and what its purpose is. The novel doesn't come to any conclusions, but as a thought experiment, it really poses issues about that. And it's, and it's great. And that's why I wrote about it. I love those kinds of yeah. renderings where you are kind of left wondering about the machinic aspect of, mm -hmm. of the human and... Uh, we could talk about this kind of stuff for a while longer, but yeah, I do, I do want to get to sure. talk about you. You've written a new book called the rhythm image. You mentioned it a couple of times. Yeah. That's essentially a study of music videos. Yeah. There's a constructive element to it, mm -hmm. uh, drawing on the lose and, and so on, but I don't want to give anything away. Would you just yeah. give us a sense for, for what you're up to with the book? Yeah. Well, sure. I mean, well, it's, it's, it may be, it's a hybrid because it's both theoretical, but it's also tried to be very concrete about particular music videos. So one of the starting points has to do with Gilles Deleuze's theory of cinema. So the French philosopher Gilles Deleuze wrote two books which came out in the 1980s. Deleuze died in like 1995. But in the 1980s, he published these two books. One was called The Movement Image, and the second one was called The Time Image. And he's proposing a kind of differentiation of different types of cinema. So... The movement image is really classical cinema, which tells stories that have cause and effect, li fairly linear cause and effect relationships. And the second volume, the time image, mostly talks about post-World War II art cinema, including the new Hollywood, but also including French and Italian and Japanese, et cetera, art directors. And Deleuze argues that what happens is that film is less centered on narrative, like what will happen next, and it's more a question of feeling time in its... Well, how do you say this? Time, what does it mean to feel that we're in time? I mean, obviously, I mean, one Henri Bergson, who's an important French philosopher, Deleuze draws in a lot, said, time means that when you put sugar in your tea, you have to wait for it to melt. It won't become sweet instantly. So processes take time, and... We don't have everything instantaneously because the processes take time and unfold over time and things change gradually as these processes take place. So what Deleuze suggests is that there's a certain sense in which modernist cinema, what he calls the time image, treats time differently than, than the earlier cinema. The earlier cinema just, you know, time is an adjunct to telling a story as fully and efficiently as possible. But in, if you, when you sort of experience time more, when the story gets suspended, somebody doesn't know what to do. They, they're not really doing anything, but you have, I mean, this is related to what's been called slow cinema in recent decades, where you have long movies where not much happened. The latest Sight and Sound, the British film magazine, releases a poll every 10 years of the greatest films. And they just released a new one. And 10 years ago, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo was the number one greatest film of all time. Now, Vertigo is only number two. And number one is Chantal Ackerman's Jeanne Dielman from 1975, which is, again, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great film. It deserves to be high on the list, but it's not a traditional narrative. It's basically, it's kind of a feminist film. It's a kind of deconstruction of housework. So basically, 
the main character is a widow with a teenage son. And you see her dealing with her son, sending him off to school, then doing all this kind of housework, going shopping, doing more housework, washing the dishes. When she washes the dishes, you have a, a single shot, which take, you know, and for the whole three minutes it takes her to actually wash the dishes, you see her washing dishes from the same camera angle. And that feels like a very long time, even though three minutes, you know, if you're doing stuff, it's short. And it, eventually, they may, without giving a lot away, eventually the main character completely cracks up. But you see this often conveyed just through small gestures and through things. Have you seen her do the same thing 25 times and 26 times? She doesn't quite do it right. And that's almost a shock because you've gotten habituated to how she usually does it. And so a movie like this is sort of making time in itself more important. The film's portraying a character who lives a kind of very empty life. She fills up her time doing things which are kind of meaningless or boring or extremely repetitious. A lot of this is stuff which has been defined as women's work because traditionally in patriarchal society, men enter the workforce while women stay at home and take care of things. But it's kind of conveying this different sense of time through the way the film is made. So that's an example of what Deleuze calls the time image. And that's a more, more radical example, but even less radically, you can say much more recent films, including films like in the new Hollywood starting in the 1970s, started have sometimes backpedal on the story and instead have your sense of this duration, things lasting going as you go through the story. So Deleuze says that's a way in which time is being articulated differently than it was in older films. Okay, so Deleuze wrote this, these books in the 1980s. So obviously he doesn't really talk about the digital or about things which have happened in the 40 years since he wrote those books. Um, lots of people, not the first, I know about half a dozen people have proposed a third type of image which corresponds to our new digital technology. So the first type of image has to do with like classical, old-fashioned classical narrative storytelling. Second one has to do with kind of modernist experimentation, which is sometimes very extreme in art in certain European art films, but other times in American films is still there, even though it just shows that the story is still there, but it's being told in a different way. So lots of people have proposed something different is happening now because of the way digital tools have changed every aspect of filmmaking and film viewing. So, I mean, what is that? It's not easy for anybody to give an answer. And as I said, what I call the rhythm is my answer. I have a list in the book somewhere of all the other answers, all the other names that people have made up for this third regime of images. I'm, I'm not trying to claim that this is the absolute key to all mythologies that it tells, explains totally what's happening in modern media, but I think it's a suggestive way of thinking about how we have different forms of media and how some music videos actually tell stories, but many music videos don't tell stories. Some of them are dance videos. Some of them are just, you know, bizarre juxtapositions of different things happening. Some tell stories, but, you know, how they tell the story is very different from how a Hollywood film would tell a story. Mm -hmm. So from one end, theoretically, I'm taking what Deleuze has said, since he's one of the most interesting philosophers ever to work on cinema and given my own alternative to what other people have already done in terms of extending it into the present, since obviously movies have changed so much. And then on the other hand, I'm taking particular video, music videos, particular artists I like, and looking very closely at what their videos are doing. Because even when they tell stories, as I said, they're telling the story in a very different way than a movie. I mean, in one reason, just because of the time, you can't tell a story in three minutes the same way you tell a story in two hours. The existential experience of it is really different also. Mm -hmm. And again, in terms of digital tools, it's very possible, and people have done it, you can make an old-fashioned film using digital tools that will probably be less expensive and easier to make it than it used to be. But you can also use these forms to make different things. Now, one extreme would be something which is so random or so heterogeneous that it would be totally inexplicable and nobody would follow it or feel anything from it. But there are many degrees in between. There are many ways in which you can have different types of things happening. I mean, some, this is very simple. If you're watching a movie, and the same character appears in different clothes and then comes back to the first set of clothes. And then you see the third set of clothes. And I mean, it feels off, especially if it's supposed to be one continuous action. In music videos, we think nothing of the fact that we see the artist like in five different locations in five different outfits, but doing gestures or dances or actions which continue over one to the other one. 
So a certain sense of what's re what makes for realism and a certain sense of how we identify with the people on screen and stuff that has changed. So that's the kind of thing I'm interested in. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I definitely want to ask you about, mm. okay, so what is your alternate proposal to some of the other ones that have, I remember some, well, I, some of them had interesting names like yeah. space, space image, morph image. Those sound pretty cool. Um, yeah, no, they are pretty cool. I mean, again, I don't want to say that they've all gotten it wrong and I've, all, and I've gotten it right. I mean, all the, all the ones I quoted, and there are about half a dozen of them, are all recent books or recent articles, often by people I know in the field and who are all making interesting formulations. So I do sort of want to say mine is just another interesting formulation. Maybe none of us has the definitive formulation, which ties it all together, but yeah. certain aspects. So when I call it the rhythm image, I want to suggest, I mean, Deleuze has two experiences of time. The first one is time is subordinated to story. The time is the time it takes for the story to unfold. And what's really important is the story unfolding. The second is that time, Deleuze says, time gets liberated from the story being told. So that's sort of like, you're. it's like, you know, in a, in a narrative or in real life, you may, you're very open to be waiting for something to happen. You know, it's going to happen, but yeah, my girlfriend's going to come visit, but she's not going to be here for two hours. What do I do for two hours? You could have a movie which just skips the two hours because the important thing is the people's interaction. Or you could have a movie where the character is worried about his girlfriend, is wondering if she really likes him, is one is worried about the relationship, and he spends two hours just fretting and sort of experiencing, waiting for, you know, before anything's going to happen, which is going to resolve things. So those are like two different experiences of time, which are both real and are both subjectively felt in certain ways. I'm thinking of how rhythm and music, I mean, think of music, and I'm thinking of how rhythm can be used as a third way of experiencing time. Rhythm has to do with recurrence. I mean, you have a beat and it comes back to the beginning, but it happens in different ways. Often the most popular music or the best music in terms of popular music of the past century is when it's syncopated, when you don't just have a rigid, regular like march rhythm, but you when the rhythm itself is kind of quivering so that it's not always on the beat and that creates excitement. And that's why most popular music uses that. In addition, popular music, one way popular music has changed over the past century is that, let's say, pre-rock and roll and pre-rhythm blues days, the most, pop the most popular music in America was like Tin Pan Alley, was the kind of songs, what's called the Great American Songbook now, the songs you hear in Hollywood musicals of the mid-century, things, people like Irving Berlin, all that kind of stuff. And that basically emphasizes melody and harmony. So there's a catchy melody and there are various kinds of harmonic changes in the course of the song. More recent music, especially music which has African and African-American roots, often emphasizes less melody and harmony, though they're still there, than rhythm and timbre. So rhythm, you know, this kind of recurrence, but which is always an offbeat because it's syncopated in various ways, and timbre meaning the sound of different instruments. So with the, whether it's electronic or physical instruments, you sort of different instruments can play the same notes and sound differently, and textures as a result get built up and, and change in the course of things. I mean, I just read this like two weeks ago, an article saying that looking at number one songs for the last 70 years and finding out that in the last 20 years, it's much less common for the number one song to have a key change in the middle of the song than was the case previously. Yeah, sad. So, well, I mean, but there are other, the, the point is, is you could, some people say, well, that means music's gotten worse, but you know, it's just, I'd say it's different and there are good things about both of those. So, I mean, a lot of, a lot of dance music, especially, but even other kinds of music and music, especially music that's more digitally, electronically inflected, even if it's being done in kind of more, you know, traditional song forms, maybe doing something different and the types of changes and the types of things which hook you to it and which get you attuned to it and then shocked by a changement is not necessarily being done with key changes, but it's being done with other aspects of the music, primarily rhythmic ones. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying anything super original about this change in the way popular music has developed over the last 50 years, but what I'm saying is that I'm suggesting that we can see that as a paradigm which applies to other temporal arts, including film, television, cinema, whatever. And that's often exemplified in music videos. Music videos are infamous for very fast editing, which is not some of them. There are music videos which are a single take lasting the whole five minutes of the song, let's say. But many music videos have very, you know, they used to talk about MTV editing and deplore when this went from music videos to, to movies. And this is in the 80s and 90s when MTV music television was the main way you saw music videos, which of course isn't true anymore today. But it's sort of like, it suggests to me, and this is where I'm extrapolating from Deleuze's film theory, 
a different organization of time, a different sense of time, which has to do with repetitions and breaks. So on one hand, the rhythm comes back, so you can dance to a song because it's not changing every measure, but it's sort of like doing the same thing. But at the same time, it's within that framework, that's when subtle things can actually change in very, in very sharp and noticeable ways. Uh, that actually points to something that I find sort of interesting and ironic. Yeah. So, um, when you talk about this kind of movement to uh, something of a metric rigidity, right? Like this yeah. idea, you know, songs are recorded to click tracks now in a way that they they want, yeah. you know, the 40s, 50s, et cetera. Um, and what I think is interesting, you cite at one point a uh, a Marxist scholar who tries to link this to, you know, to yeah. the, the Fordist factory and its yes. rhythms, which I, you know, if I'm being honest, I find a pretty tendentious route because mm -hmm. I think if we look at it, the root is more ironic uh, in the sense that it's coming out of this African and African-American yes. traditions where it's, you know, it's in genres like funk that you start mm -hmm. to really see this first kind of rigid or disco where you see these yeah. rigid locking in. And the point there is ironic. The reason I call it ironic is that you create a rigid rhythmic structure precisely because by making that structure rigid, your syncopations, the places right. where you break that rhythm become more impactful and become more noticeable. Like no one notices a mild mm -hmm. syncopation in, you know, yeah. a Debussy piece, for example, right? Because it's all yeah. kind of anyway. But when you do that to a clicked track, disco track, mm -hmm. yeah. it becomes extremely noticed. Uh, you know, a 32nd, a 16th note um, shift becomes really substantial right. and i think there's more i mean i'm not sure i'm good enough to do it in musical terms which is partly why i'm doing it talking about music videos rather than just musical tracks but it's sort of like i mean this goes back to the 1970s when george clinton with parliament funkadelic was trying to differentiate what he was his funk which he was doing from disco so they both have very similar rhythms to each other, but he was suggesting, I mean, there were some like white rock and roll people who said the disco sucks and it was kind of homophobic and kind of weird. But George Clinton was just saying, well, here, you know, we have this funk energy, which has to do with these rhythms and syncopations. And disco, he said, was was too boring way to do it. And he was doing it much more creatively. And I mean, that's why, I mean, one of my favorite albums from that period is the Parliament album, Funk and Teleki versus the Placebo Syndrome. And so the placebo syndrome, you know, placebo is something which doesn't really have an effect, but you think it does. So like you might get better from taking a pill because you think it's going to work, even though it doesn't do anything. And that's his analysis of disco. And then funk and teleki. And teleki is a word which goes back to like ancient Greek and Aristotle and stuff. It means having a direction and a thrust in a certain certain way to change things. So again, he was already thinking in terms of like, these different rhythms and more lively versus more me mechanistic ways of playing with them. But yeah, I mean, a lot of that is sort of stuff which is more vital or lively versus stuff which just seems more mechanistic. And you can't really have one without the other. You know, if you're just mechanistic, you get bored, but it's very hard to have something vital if you don't have a background that's mechanistic to depart from and contrast with. Yeah. Well, I guess one of the ways we can think about what's going on, in, in, at least in part, in, in part of this conversation is, you know, we're talking about this shift from a sort of more analog or organic mm -hmm. sense of time. And then you have digitization where everything is becoming yeah. segmented in different and interesting ways. And I, one of the things that you pick up on is the way that that shift is also mapped onto the shift from sovereignty to discipline. Mm -hmm. um, in, in a, in a political sense. But then and, maybe there's something else beyond discipline. I mean, I can talk about that if you want also, but exactly. Yeah. That was wondering well, if you could talk about that. Sovereign, I mean, this originally comes from Foucault and then from Deleuze. So Foucault's Discipline and Punish, which I still think is kind of his best, his greatest book, starts with two pictures. There's one picture where somebody tried to kill the king and as punishment, he was tortured in public and they deliberately made the torture last as long as possible and have to suffer as much as possible before he'd fall unconscious or die and made this a public spectacle. So everybody was hooting and hollering and enjoying seeing this horrific thing going on. Then he has another picture just like 100, 150 years later where he quotes the regulations of a prison and it's kind of absurdly regimented, like the prisoners must get up at exactly 7.03. They have until 7.06 to wash themselves. Then they must go to the dining room and must sit down in their seats by 7.08 to get the food. And then by 7.23, they're finished. I mean, it's, it's, it's like it's the whole day is being. And he said, here are two pictures of power operating, somebody being tortured and people being regimented in prison. In both cases, we have power operating and, and people being denied freedom. But 
they're doing it in completely different ways. How do we get from A to B? Okay, so those are like examples or emblems, but he traces ways in which all society, a sovereign society is one in which is more organized around hierarchical chains of command. The king is on top and all this kind of stuff. And the sovereign has the power to kill you if you step out of line. To a different kind of society where we have rule more by bureaucracies and routines, we have different areas like schools, we have hospitals, we have factories, we have the military barracks, all these different places have analogous but different rules. But in each case, they're regulated by these very objective sounding procedures, which are yet, you know, trying to get into every aspect of life. It's not that one's better or worse than the other, but it's kind of you move from a system where they don't care what you do as long as you don't step past the boundary. If you step past the boundary, they'll probably be tortured and horrible, grotesque things going to happen to you and eventually be killed. Um, the more modern disciplinary society is one in which it's sort of like whatever you're doing, the society wants to kind of regulate and regiment every little thing you're doing. And this change has there are a lot of reasons. It has to do with the nature of capitalism. It has to do with technological changes. It has to do with all kinds of things, but the you know, proliferation of just timekeeping devices, you can yeah. put on your arm and walk around. 500 years ago, nobody worried about whether it was 703 or 704. I mean, right. they just weren't that precise about time, but especially for various scientific and technological reasons, as well as for how mass production and things that work, it became much more of a concern. So that's Foucault's picture. Deleuze takes it up and adds a third type, which he calls the command society. And I mean, that has to do less with discipline and regimentation and repetition than with codes and markers and, and things like that. So it's sort of like, you'll have these things in your phone. I mean, this is a little beyond what we actually have, but you'll have these things in the phone and, you know, you'll use your phone to unlock your, your apartment. So you flash the phone and it'll tell you, you know, some people will be able to get in, some people won't be able to get in, or you can spend money by using the phone without having, having a contactless kind. I mean, all these kinds of things sort of suggest a different way of slicing and dicing things up. Deleuze says it's whereas the other regimes are based on individuals, he said the word he meant is individual instead of individual. And he says we're kind of just divided up into these different kinds of zones or different kinds of aspects. And you might have certain types of rights in one aspect of yourself, of your life, and others in other. And, and it can all be done, you know, through computers and stuff like that. And Deleuze suggests we're seeing the beginning of a new type of social formation. And again, he emphasizes it's not a question of which one's better or one's worse. There are different forms of power. We always have impositions of power denying people freedom. We always have people struggling to regain the freedom. But it, this happens in different kinds of ways. But anyway, so I'm very roughly trying to coordinate those things with these changes in, in media and changes in forms of expression in movies and videos and things like that. And again, whenever you do that, you're definitely going to be reductive. I mean, there's a chart in my, in my book where I try to give these characteristics of these different kinds of things. And I just have three columns and all these things correspond. And the thing is, it's like, I'm sure the chart is not 100% valid. I'm sure, you know, there have to be exceptions. So there must be, somebody could point to something and say, this doesn't fit into your chart at all. It wreaks havoc with it. And I'm, I'm okay with that. I think... These are general patterns, which are not true in every instance, but still they organize things in a way that makes sense of a lot of things and is therefore informative in a way that just that not having the chart wouldn't be. So, yeah, again, it's what I was saying before about being in between. I don't believe in rigid systems. I can't make them myself, and I don't think they, they are always exceptions to them. But if you understand how they work and see them as heuristic or helpful things rather than as absolute things, then I think they do give you a lot of clarity and show how things fit together in ways that you couldn't do if you just analyzed every individual instance completely separately. I wonder if you could make um, somewhat explicit the way in which that, because your analysis of control society makes, yeah. makes sense, the way that links into specifically the idea of rhythm that you're you're analyzing through music videos. I'm not sure I can do it as easily as I'd like, and maybe... If I opened the book and found the chart and showed it to you, that would be a better explanation than anything can say in words. But basically, um, we have things kind of divided up in different ways, often in ways which are not necessarily immediately apparent to our senses. One of the things computers can do is, a lot of what computers do is really dumb and mechanical, but they can do it incredibly fast. So if you do these things in a, in, you know, in a millisecond, then you do a thousand of them in a second, whereas our human, my human brain can only do one or two of them in a second. 
So there's a certain efficiency there, but that changes how everything fits together. And it changes it's like electronic drum machines or synthesizers can make a very, very, very mechanical rhythm, much more closer to a pure metronome than a human drummer could do. But on the other hand, it also allows you to do little micro changes, which, you know, you might not even hear them very clearly, but they sort of, they have an effect. I mean, the thing is, there's a lot of stuff which goes on beneath the threshold of our conscious perception and yet which affects us. And one of the things that digital technologies do, and this is both for good and for ill, because it's very much used by corporations to manipulate people's responses, is to anticipate and guide you before you can become conscious of what you're doing. And in a certain sense, subliminal suggestions like in the 1950s, there was all this panic about subliminal advertising, and it turned out to be mostly not true because the technology back then wasn't good enough to do it. Now, however, our technologies are more capable of doing things. And, you know, computational media can give us suggestions in vain, like fractions of a second, which register are not, we're not conscious of, or at least not conscious of until later, but which register in our brains and our bodies in a certain way and thus inflect our decisions and our actions. That can be very insidious, but it also, I mean, I think artists can use things like that in order to shake things up and disrupt regularities and continuities. So it, it works both ways, but it has to do with the fact that when you edit it, when people edit movies and they had, before digital technology, they did by hand, they have to literally cut and paste pieces of film and put them back together again in different ways. If you had a single frame or something, it would be very hard for, to see though it would register an impact. But now that it's digital, it can be done in more micro, fine-grained things, and they can experiment and see what effect this has if you don't entirely realize that that's what you're doing. I mean, this is something I'm interested in, which perhaps other people may be better at me at working this out in greater detail. But it's sort of like, why do we consciously perceive and what affects us? Like, there are a lot of things impinging on us and affecting us. If I see a person I know walking down the street, then just seeing them is having an effect on me. There's this phenomenon which a friend of mine pointed out to me out to me once, and which seems to be true. You're walking down the street, you see somebody or they see you, they smile, and then a fraction of the letter, they frown. It's sort of like you recognize, oh, this is somebody I know. And then a half a second later, you think, oh shit, this is this creep I really hate. But your immediate reaction of recognizing it in your brain, sort of pre-consciously, precedes your conscious awareness, I don't like this person. If you observe interactions, you can actually see this happen sometimes. It just seems to be a vivid example of stuff. Anything we perceive affects us because it enters into our brains. We're aware of it. We're conscious about it. We may be subliminal. I mean, there are things which are more directly conscious of things you're less like you've focused on one thing and there are other things in your surroundings, but you notice things in the background and they have an effect on you. But you can also be affected by things which you don't perceive at all. I mean, again, a, an obvious example, because it's an old fashioned example, is sunburn. We perceive the visible spectrum. We don't perceive ultraviolet radiation, though some animals and birds, some birds can see the, and insects can see the ultraviolet part of the spectrum. But you can be affected by ultraviolet if you don't see it. If you go to the beach and the next day you have a sunburn on, on the back of your neck, mm. you, you didn't see the ultraviolet rays at the time, but you're feeling them behind your head a day after they, they hit you because it caused the sunburn. Yeah. There's this very like concrete sense in which like a lot of this circles yeah. back back to what Justin was talking about. Like what can a yeah. body what can a body do, right? Yeah. I, like th what you're saying now, there's almost like a material apophaticism or something like this where and then and this is why I think Spinoza poses it as the statement, we do not yet know what a body can do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, again, Spinoza is important both as a philosopher himself and also for his influence on later people like Deleuze, but again. We don't perceive, but we may perceive them later. I mean, as I said, the example of that's why I like the example of the sunburn. You didn't perceive the ultraviolet rays at the time they were bathing you in it, but you perceive it a day later because your skin is irritated and because of the sunburn. So a lot of things affect us consciously, but a lot of things also affect us subliminally in different ways that we don't realize until later. Or we may not even know, you may not even know. I mean, it's sort of like if you're in a bad mood, you don't necessarily know why you're in a bad mood. Sometimes if you introspect or if you go to see a therapist, something you might figure out why you're in such a bad mood. It might be something completely weird and completely irrelevant for other things, but something affected you and gave you the bad mood. But you don't necessarily know what it is that's giving you the bad mood when you have when you first have the bad mood. And I guess same thing true for a good mood also, obviously. 
So I'm interested in the way in which digital technologies and digital forms of art allow us to become more aware of those things than we are otherwise. I mean, that's why both big corporations and governments can use it to manipulate us maybe to a frightening extent, which they couldn't do before, but it also means that tools exist for analyzing and mapping out these things that didn't exist before. It, you know? it makes me think a lot of what you're talking about, you know, with your like sunburn example, it brings to mind the discussion in your text about, you know, the concealed cut. And I'm, and I'm thinking a lot as you're talking yeah. about the way that editing at a, at a sort of literal, like, like editing in film mm -hmm. level, yeah. you know, manifest some of this. And one of the places I think you're seeing not only an embrace of, you know, I guess you call it the MTV mm. editing style, the most yeah. derogatory name, um, but also maybe even an intensification of the, yeah. the sort of rapidity of the cut is in places like YouTube. So like, you know, mm -hmm. YouTube video creation, um, the the speed of cuts is incredible. Yes. And, and one of the things that's, you know, sort of distinctive in like the video essay form, for example, right, are these... Um, uh, I don't even know what you call them. These sort of like weird kind of match cut. Yeah. He's talking and it'll just sort of mm. like, there's like a little stutter cut where they, you know, yeah. they cut out an um or an um right. or a mumble mm -hmm. or something like that. Yeah. And, and you know, the traditional way was you mask those cuts by going to a different camera angle or something. Right. Like and now they don't have, they don't bother to do that. They just. Exactly. Yeah. And so, but the weird thing is there's still a way in which, which consciously psychologically they're still masked even though yeah. there's actually no attempt at a at a literal mm -hmm. level to mask those cuts. Well, again, I mean, that's been true for a long time, but it gets much more massively the case with digital. I mean, this in general, editing, movie edit, film editing or cinematic editing in, in movies, videos, whatever, is something that really interests me and in that it's something I wish I, under, I was better at on a very technical level. I suspect actually interviewing actual editors would, would teach us more about this. But I mean, it's kind of like, yeah, I mean, there are certain things you notice and certain things you don't notice, but and both of those can be manipulated. In 1959, Jean-Luc Godard's first film, Breathless, which was one of the most revolutionary and sort of changing the way films were made, did all these jump cuts where, you know, he'd sort of cut out three or four seconds of the action. So you'd sort of have a jump and it would feel discordant from one thing to the next thing, like, you know, Somebody's seeing his gun out of pop pocket and then they shoot, but the three minutes when the three seconds when you take to actually take the gun and pull the trigger is left out. And you feel the jump and it's makes you uncomfortable, and that's a deliberate aesthetic effect. But now you can do the same thing in order to speed things up or relate things differently without having the jolting effect of you can you can tell that it's discordant. I find that really interesting. I mean, I'm not sure I have an overall theory about it, but it's also like, yeah. There's some movies which have very long takes, but the take, but they faked it. I mean, a movie like Birdman, which won several Oscars, yeah. Except for the beginning, like the first twenty and last twenty minutes are sold more, but then like the middle hour and a half of the movie is like seems to be one continuous take. But I read it to you, so they in fact faked it at several points. Like the camera goes over the floor, and that's when they were able to yeah. stop and then pick up with the same lighting, so it would look like it fit together. And Still like every, every quick wipe in that movie, yeah. the camera turns really fast, right. is actually hiding a cut. Exactly. No. On the other hand, there, there are no. some movies which actually do may go for a long range without without cuts. And they're kind of, they're, I don't know, did, any, did you see that there's a movie, a British movie from two or three years ago called Boiling Point? It's about a chef and you know, at a very high price, prestigious cafe who's trying to get through the evening with all these demands on him. And it's like... It's a, it's a really good film. I mean, it's just so it's a it's it's a non fake single take for an hour and thirty minutes, and it just this. I mean, there there relaxing sequences like at one point somebody one of the people in the kitchen goes back out to receive to receive a delivery from a delivery truck, and the film follow the camera follows that person just so that it can sort of slow down for a little bit. But the guy, the chef, I mean, in the kitchen, he's like constantly doing five things at once. And trying to be in some of the yells him. I mean, it's it it's it really conveyed this this sense of total overload. And it did it through having what I understood to be a single take for the home loo without any fake cuts. That's but you know, it's very but it's very hard to do, obviously. Right. Yeah, one one person forgets their line and it's like, ah, yeah, start over. We're we're yeah. we're three minutes from the finish line. Well, there's a story when Orson Welles shot his film Touch of Evil in 1958. 
Um, Petroville is famous because it starts with a like four minute continuous shot, which goes in all these different directions, shows you all these different things and how they're related. And he took a whole night to do it because each time they take an hour and a half to set up, they do it. And then at the very end, like 30 seconds before the end, one of the actors blew their lines. And eventually he had the actor just turn back to the cameras and said, don't say anything. We'll put it in later. And that's the only way they got through the, sh the take. But it's kind of given the technology of the time, it's an amazing four minute take. And then, of course, well, I mean, you know, then you have in Robert Altman's film, The Player, we have an opening nine minute long take in which two of the characters are talking about Orson Welles' four minute long take at the beginning of that film. So it can become very self referential. But anyway, those, I mean, different camera takes, whether it's either very rapid editing or very concealed or minimal editing and just movement, they both, again, create different kind of bodily rhythms and mental habits and we perceive things in different ways and it's very hard but it's interesting to try to talk about how those things fit in with each other and stuff i, I think a really good example of this is um i don't know if you know uh, childish gambino's this is america music video yes yes where certainly. it has the where it's literally a one take or at least it's it's yes. it looks like a one take i don't know if there yeah. are, are hidden cuts um but the interesting thing about it is it is it maintains the kinetic energy so that yes. when you're watching it, it it feels like it's like it feels like a, something that's constantly yes. cutting, even though in reality it is it is sort of seamlessly moving through. Um, and so there's yeah. there's an interesting way in which there's I think often like the the long cut is perceived as being this the sort of slow and meditative thing, mm, but and, it doesn't, and yeah. He's, He's right. a different way of using it, where exactly it, it just feels more anxious, if anything. Yes, no, that's a great. I mean, that's again, I didn't talk about it in my book, but Hiro Morai, who's the director of that music video, he did. He's a he's he was one of the most inventive music video directors. He did about he did a bunch of films for different videos for different artists, but he did about four or five films with Childish Gambino, and then he parlayed that into he's the director of. Like for each of the four seasons of Atlanta, he directed like seven of the 10 episodes and he's gone into other television work. I don't know if he's made any movies, but I mean, so he's not making music videos anymore, which is unfortunate, but he's obviously a really brilliant director. Atlanta is a great and, show. Yeah. Yeah. And Atlanta is a great show. Yeah. One of the very few I actually watch. But, and I think a really good example of what a positive use of a sort of music video aesthetic and music video editing style can look like in film. Whereas like on the other side, you have somebody like Zack Snyder who came out of music mm -hmm. videos. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think, you know, at least I would argue is, is representing the, the sort of worst way of translating. Well, again, style. agree. I mean, I'm, I'm not a fan of Zack Snyder, but, or of Michael Bay, but I mean, again, we have to recognize that, using a certain technique doesn't automatically make it either good or bad, but you can't just say, well, here's a good film and we just know the bad ones use the technique because obviously the technique being used has a big effect. It's a big part of the overall meaning events of an event of, of the film or the video. And so you sort of have, have, have to balance that. But, but yeah, I think it's a very bad idea to just automatically say that these new things have to be bad because then you don't, really get to see when people are using it in smart and interesting and provocative and emotionally resonant ways, which is what I try. I mean, I try to talk about that in the various chapters of my book. The book concentrates more on the musical artists, but in all the cases, I try to talk also about the directors, people often have, first of all, certain directors often work with the same, the same artists, but even when they work with different artists, they're often doing I mean, you can see multiple continuities. Different musical artists have different same themes along different compositions, but sometimes different music video directors do related things, even though at each time they're tailoring to which particular artists they're working with.
I wonder maybe as we're probably getting close to uh, mm-hmm. an hour or so at this point and we start to move toward close. Yeah. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about maybe the politics or the ethics of the rhythm image. Obviously, we've talked politics uh, a bit already. Yeah. But, you know, what would it look like? Like, I guess, you know, in the simplest form, like, how do you live the rhythm image? Or is it possible to 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 pull it out of this this field of media and technology and mm-hmm. into life? And and what would what would a uh, I guess a a divisible self look like um, well, in the real world. Yeah. <laughs> well, again, it's it's always a matter of degree. I mean, there's certain baselines, and you know, I don't think I could live my life always at the rhythm of a very fast edited music video. I mean, I'd probably collapse and get sick before too long because I just couldn't keep up the energy. On the other hand, of that is that. What the media are doing is not, I mean, you don't have life over here and then the media reflecting on that life somewhere else. Media, we, there's, we see so many images here, so many sounds, there's so many processes going on. They're part of our everyday existence. I guess I guess much less media exposure when I'm asleep, but whenever we're awake, I mean, we're so often seeing screens and interacting in multiple ways. And it's very different from what we did say 30 years ago, let alone a hundred years ago. In other words, the whole structure of feeling, which gives our everyday life, is includes this. It doesn't mean that everything in our life is this way, but these kinds of information patterns and media patterns are increasingly. I mean, there there are people who say, "I never watch TV. I never I never turn on the computer or whatever." But most people do, and it's very hard to get along with a lot of things in, in the world if you don't. I don't remember the statistics, but. 75 or 80 percent of the world population over the age of 12 has a cell phone, even in the poorest countries. And that's just radically changed our everyday experience. When cell phones first started, one time I was visiting Europe and everybody was texting each other all the time. And very few people did that at home. But then, you know, a couple of years later, texting became as central in the U.S. as it was in these European countries. They were just had the technology a few years earlier. And now I think it's central all over the world, including in very poor countries because they built the infrastructure for that and people are able to afford phones in ways that were not true of other types of media. So it's less that I don't think that our whole life is going the way these media work, but that these media are woven into our life in ways which have profound consequences, which is very hard to see. I mean, one of my favorite statements in all of the history of media theories when Marshall McLuhan said, a fish would never discover water. If you right. something such a part of the background that you take it for granted, if everything you do, then it's much harder to see it for what it is and for what it does. And I think that's true of our media today also. So, I mean, it's very worthwhile to try to figure out how it's working. But obviously, when I'm figuring out how it's working in music videos by the weekend, that's not identical to how it's working in my everyday life from moment to moment. Yet we know that it is somehow working in our everyday life from moment mm-hmm. to moment, at least to some extent. So I can't give a general statement or a general explanation, but that seems to me to be a big part of it. Yeah. To the extent that we can say that we're engaged in media and media kind of moves along at yeah. various pulsations or rhythms or meters, mm-hmm. right? And we sort of, you know, nobody checks with us about, so what BPM do you think this life should be lived in? <laughs> you know? Well, and so I think yeah. like there, what I like about Maybe one of the little takeaways that maybe, I don't know if it's intended or not, but, you know, as a drummer, it was always my job to like, you know, you get that four count to set set the tempo. And I think there's something that is potentially liberating in the sense that you can set your own tempo. So Yeah. (laughs) Well, to some extent, to some extent you can't, I mean, you know, to some extent. I mean, as a university professor, when I work at home, which I've been doing since the beginning of COVID, I actually may have more hours of work, but I set my own tempo in the same sense. I don't have to be in the classroom at 1030. If I laze around and don't get to it till 1130, it doesn't matter as long as, you know, I keep up to a general schedule. Yeah. You know, and I I like that as the way in that sense, it's true that digital stuff has freed us to make our own tempo. It's also true that digital stuff has led to much more surveillance than before and kind of micromanaging on the part of corporations and stuff like that. And, you know, It's always a mistake to say X technology is a good thing or it's a bad thing. Yeah. You, what you have to do is realize that it does change things, but realize that it changes in multiple ways, some of which may be very good and some of which may be very bad and and everything in between. Yeah. Just the last point about when you were talking yeah. about sur- surveillance. This is a few years ago, but I remember uh, 
I, I can't even remember where I heard this, but there were studies mm -hmm. done where people were asked about, you know, if this were happened, would you consider this a violation of your privacy and so on? Yeah. And, and people were just like, no, you know, things that like you, you would think that's very invasive. And people were just like, no, mm -hmm. that's, you know, that's fine. That's just kind of the, the world we live in. But then they, when the question was asked in terms of like, well, what if it was like, what if they got access to that one dick pic you sent? Mm -hmm. And then they were yeah. like, no, we can't have that. And I, and I was just like, I just thought that was so interesting because yeah, I don't know. I'd kind of fall out on the opposite of it. Like, yeah, let the world see. Well, again, <laughs> I, but it, I mean, it depends on, I mean, that's, to bring back the discussion to the beginning, that's one of the things which I find interesting in science fiction. Science fiction can take these things which are in our background and which you don't really worry about too much and crank it up to a level where it would be so noticeable that we'd have to take it into account. Right. Maybe, you know, oh, it's okay if people see that dick pic, which I sent when I, you know, when I was being very foolishly enamored of this person who now can't stand. But on the other hand, there might be a way in which, you know, you get points taken off for everyone, you know, and then it would really affect you and, and affect your reputation and affect your employability and stuff. I mean, you know, one of the things science fiction does is precisely to project these situations and think about it in if these things are pushed much further than they actually are in the existing world. Yeah. Kind of bring and, them, push them to their ultimate yeah. logical conclusion in a sense. Right. And, you know, that can be sometimes very troubling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, this is, this was great. I appreciate your time. I don't want to take it. No, more. it's fine. Thank you very much for having me on on the show. I mean, I'm just it's high intensity, but I enjoy talking about this stuff. Obviously, since I'm writing about it, and I'm glad to have this conversation with you guys about it. So, Thank you so much. Is, this is, is your, a lot of fun. Really quickly, is your yeah. book is is your book out yet, or is it it's it has it been published, uh, or when will that be? Available? The rhythm image is currently available for Kindle and other digital platforms like Google Play and other book ebook readers. Okay. The Physical print copies should be out in the next two weeks, but oh, they nice. aren't out yet. So, yeah. I mean, I never know what the, it's, it's weird. I mean, it used to be, you know, the book was out when you had it physically in your hands, but now, you know, yeah, it's, it's been available for the Kindle for several weeks already. So it's just, it's kind of an odd change about saying, yeah, again, that that's, you know, I, I read many more, most more books digitally than I physically buy books at this point. Oh, uh, nice. So, yeah. Well, I would I, just know. I would just encourage everyone to, you know, go pick it up. And um, I'd also recommend the the little book on accelerationism. It's fantastic. And I really enjoyed your your book on um, Harmon and Whitehead. I forget what it's called. But um, yeah, appreciate yeah. You. well, thank you. And thanks for having me. And it's great. It's been great talking to you. All right, brother. So, have a good one. OK, have a good Bye. one.